Hello and welcome. I'm Marianne Fessenden from AMTS, and this is the Nutritionist Webinar. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are joined by Dr. Tom Taluki, CEO of AMTS. While it is always tempting to jump right into the video, it would be hubris for me to assume you all know Tom's history. For those of you who do, I won't be too long. Tom was raised on a 65-cow dairy farm in eastern New York State. He attended Cornell University, where he received his B.S. Master's and Ph.D. in Animal Science. Tom's Ph.D. work focused on predicting phosphorus excretion of cattle and implementing Six Sigma quality control principles on commercial dairy farms. Upon completing his Ph.D. in 2002, he continued with the development of CNCPS and began consulting with the feed industry. In 2005, he left Cornell University to start Agricultural Modeling and Training Systems, AMTS. As a co-inventor of CNCPS, Taluki has been focusing on ensuring the core biological model is implemented correctly for day-to-day -day ration formulation. In his role at AMTS, Tom, his partners Caroline, Vijay, and Lynn, and their team develops, trains, and provides nutritional technical support for nutritionists and feed industry globally. Tom has over 150 publications, including journal articles, book chapters, extension articles, and popular press articles. He is a member of the American Registry of Professional Animal Scientists, where he is a board-certified animal nutritionist. In addition to AMTS, Tuluki is a partner in a large dairy farm in New York State, his wife, Bonnie, is a veterinarian, and they have two children. They all live near Ithaca, New York. As I told Tom, even though the nutritionist webinars are meant to be separate from our core business of selling and supporting our CNCPS-based ruminant nutrition software, we have had speakers whose work and research may not wholly agree with the model, and we do not feel that that is a conflict of information. Some concepts evolve, and that cannot happen in stasis. I do make no apologies for asking Tom to speak and to speak often. Tom's initial experiences in extension, position as our resident polymath, and his abilities in understanding and explaining multifaceted issues make him a critical resource in ruminant nutrition education. When we set up the schedule for 2021, we intended to have Tom come back nearly at the end to wrap up what was intended to be a glorious year of exciting farm tours with nutritional experts around the world. Those of you who have watched all year, and thank you, know our tours have not always been as glorious as hoped. Sound issues and video snafus have been a plague. Videography is not the main skill of our speakers, and it's not what we asked them here for. We did want the experience to be as authentic as possible without veering into the unwatchable. You may have noted that we switched Tom and Daniel Scothorne. Daniel had a conflict and Tom was able to oblige. Our team discussions on topics range from poking the bear with discussion of the new information presented at the NRC webinars, but it's not yet published, and an ingredient-focused discussion. We are happy to have finally defeated the sound issue and delighted to have Tom talk about replacement heifers birth to transitioning to milking, with a tour through the facilities of the same upstate New York dairy he has featured in his previous videos. As a brief weather report, last year you saw beautiful sun, 
In February, Tom had to struggle through snowdrifts. In this video, you get to see some typical autumn rain. Enjoy the presentation and remember to enter your questions or requests for elaboration in the chat or Q&A windows. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to this month's webinar. Uh, and we're gonna focus on heifers this week, this month actually. <laughs> uh, Marianne kept asking me, what was I gonna do? What was I gonna do? And we've always had discussions on heifers and lots of questions. So that's where we're going to focus on. Uh, I'm going to introduce a couple new uh, concepts as well uh, that I've been thinking about that I want to more fully develop here over the in the near future. Uh, we're back here at, at uh, uh, the farm that I did the earlier webinar on, uh, and we're going to go through uh, the entire heifer program that that I do here, um, and going to challenge people on some thinking. Uh, as I was thinking about how to do this, there, there's some things that, that really popped into my mind that I think are going to lead to some pretty good discussion. Uh, so the first thing uh, that, that we're going to do actually is let's think about some of these, uh, the, these new concepts. Okay, so the first new concept that I want to throw out and this is the one that I'm going to really focus on uh, a lot of future thinking is one that, that I think many of us around the world uh, think about, but, but we really, we really don't talk about. Uh, we're, we're actually challenged by this three way. Now it used to just be two way, but now I added a third component to it. That, that really is our, our balancing act. Uh, and, and that is what I'm calling biological opti optimal nutrition, BON, versus FON, which is financially optimal nutrition. And then there's an EON, or EON, yeah, EON, uh, environmentally optimal nutrition. These are not equal. Uh, they, they, you know, in a perfect world, uh, they would all converge and be equal with biologically optimal nutrition. But in reality, they almost never are. Uh, we will almost always see where financially optimal nutrition is less than biologically optimal. Uh, and that's driven by feed cost, or, as well as uh, limitations on the farm, as, and probably by the most by how milk is priced. You know, if we're in a fluid market, we might not go after full amino acid formulation uh, because that's actually pretty expensive. At the same time, we know if we manipulate some fatty acids in the pre-fresh and fresh period, we can have some awesome opportunities with repro. But is it environmentally, is it financially justifiable to do that always? Environmentally? Well, at first I was like, well, this is going to equal biologically optimal nutrition. But we know that's not true. Let's think about pasture animals, pasture, pure pasture. It might be financially optimal and it might be very good environmentally, but it's far from biologically optimal nutrition. So I want you to be thinking about these uh, as we go through some of the things we're going to do today, but just to think overall uh, in terms of how we formulate diets. 
So we're actually starting here uh, on the farm in the uh, calf kitchen, basically. And to give you an idea, um, so this, this facility was built a couple years ago. It was the second little calf barn that, that, was, per, that was built. Uh, historically, everything had been done in hutches. And if we step out, uh, I have a bunch more data and papers to show you and everything. So we still do use some hutches, okay? And, and calves are in hutches primarily now up until about day 22, I think. Um, and then they come into this first facility. Uh, this is the newer one. Uh, it's a sturdy built barn. It's a little company in Pennsylvania that, that does these calf nurseries. Uh, they're really kind of nice. They're a kit barn. Uh, they come in and build it uh, pretty quick. Um, and by the, the default design has three, you can do three individual pens with these plastic dividers that you can then pull and make into groups of three. Now, I wish that they made them so that we could do groups of four uh, because there is data showing that, that we should always have even numbered animals in pens uh, so, that there's, so that everyone always has a buddy. Uh, but it is what it is. Um, we are pretty much uh, the, the current uh, young stock manager. When calves move into this barn, uh, she's letting them adapt in individual pens for a couple days. Okay, and then they are going on to these small groups. Uh, we're in the process of, of changing some things where there's going to be a pasteurizer that'll be going in on the farm here. I don't know, it depends on finances, and everyone knows how awesome the dairy industry is. Uh, so, getting it got it priced out, working on the plan to get it done. Feed three times a day, as, as I've said. Uh, whole milk, uh, morning and night, uh, at a graduated rate. And then a uh, uh, milk replacer feeding at noon. Uh, just looking at the cost of the milk replacer, uh, the, the, the operational cost, not including operations cost or maintenance or anything, but replacing that with the pasteurizer, uh, that'll pay for itself in a couple years. Plus, I think I know we're, we're giving up some average daily gain and some calf health by using raw waste milk, uh, not to mention shifts in temperature and everything uh, from the time milk is put in the tank and, and then delivered to the calves, especially during the winter. Uh, we definitely have some challenges. Uh, the calf grain is uh, a low starch, uh, high, high NDF, a lot of fermentable NDF in it, uh, pellet. Uh, calves are offered that from day two, day three of life, as well as water right away from day two, day three of life. Uh, we just did a change in, in our weaning program here. Uh, it used to be a pretty abrupt uh, weaning system where calves would be fed uh, three times a day on day 49, on day 50, and day 51 they would be fed twice a day, and day 52 no more milk. Uh, we just changed it uh, to where we're stepping it down over, over 10 days. And we did some weights and we definitely saw some pretty impressive improvements uh, in, in average daily gain through that period. To the point where uh, the calves that were on the abrupt breeding system for a week gained, you know, 
pound a day maybe <laughs> maybe even less on some some of them that we measured uh, while the ones that that we did the step down uh, really uh, had a small blip in, in average daily gain uh, during that period uh, to the point where uh, they it's very clear uh, and it was it was a finally we were able to implement this change I've been wanting to implement this change for years on the farm uh, but it's always been an issue of um, labor and, and labor management concerns about being able to do that so after they are weaned uh, now in a perfect world I would be saying that, that right away at like day 60, they would be leaving this facility and moving into the, into uh, bedded packs, small groups. But like most farms, uh, we're backed up uh, on animal numbers. Uh, you know, you build, you, you expand number of cows, got to expand your feed storage, got to expand your heifer facilities. Uh, so it, it's you know, manure storage, everything. Uh, and it's the heifer uh, system that, that right now is, is overcrowded uh, and, and it's a constraining factor. But that is the plan is next year uh, to replace one barn uh, and make it bigger and, and reduce that overcrowding issue. Um, as you can see, these sturdy built barns, um, you know, they are open. Uh, there's curtains on the front that when it's really cold can uh, can be closed and on the back there's curtains uh, yes that means that the person taking care of the calves is still exposed out here in the environment uh, but since we uh, put this first one up I think it's been five or six years now the uh, calf health in these these little facilities is phenomenal um, it, it's it's actually a lot nicer than working with hutches because it's actually cooler in the summer. Uh, and during the winter, uh, you close those curtains on the front and back, uh, and it's, it's pretty nice in these. And of course, as we walk by, we have one calf coughing. Isn't that normal? So after weaning, uh, they come into this pack facility, okay. Uh, and this is the facility that will be replaced uh, next year. Um, it's, it was built in 1996. Uh, it's fully depreciated. Uh, and it is time. It's had a lot of money put into it over the years. Uh, but it's too small. And uh, structurally, it's not great. But performance-wise, okay. So... I did some calculations. I, I went through dairy comp because we have uh, three sets of scales. So I have all sorts of numbers. I took just 20 animals, the last, uh, pretty much the last 20 animals that were uh, moved where we had weights and started looking at what kind of gains and everything we get. And I will tell you that from uh, birth, uh, our average birth weight uh, for those 20 animals was 80 pounds. And that included a set of twins. If I knocked those out, our average birth weight was 82 pounds on heifers or 37.3 kilos. 
At uh, about 90 days of age, um, we have a body weight of 236 pounds, so an average daily gain from birth to that period of 1.83 pounds or 829 grams. Uh, that's up, that, that's actually nice to see that being up uh, because all of the numbers we've had previously have included that, that weaning slump uh, and uh, would always be, uh, we're up probably 100 grams um, by changing that weaning system. Um, when they come in here, uh, they are still being fed some calf starter uh, in this first pen okay and then also the high cow tmr and they remain on the high cow tmr until six months um, and it uh it really does fit their nutritional requirements really nicely uh to the point where through this facility so my next uh weaning uh, my next body weight is somewhere between six and seven months and we average, the average weight at, at that time is 564 pounds, 256 kilos. Uh, and we've averaged 2.89 pounds a day gain, uh, so 1,314 grams. Uh, and as we go down and look at these little girls, you will see that uh, we get down to the oldest ones in this barn, which are going to be about four or five months of age. And again, these animals are uh, in this facility only. They have no access to any pasture. Um, Okay, so we'll see if we start evaluating body condition score at this stage, okay. Um, for typical freestyle type heifers, uh, we don't have fat heifers in this area, okay. Uh, we be looking at these girls, you'll see they are in a good, uh, good level of body condition, absolutely, uh, but we do have really nice frame on them uh, and good muscle development okay we, we aren't dealing with with um, with fat heifers at this stage it's awfully difficult to make fat heifers th at this stage if you have adequate levels of, of protein going into the diet and that again the high cow TMR uh, is is a perfect fit for these animals now you may wonder, I say that, why don't I do a specific TMR for heifers of this age? I could further fine tune this diet, absolutely. Uh, it's just like when we get into the, the, the open heifers and the bred heifers. They are actually fed the same TMR as well. And I could make it more precise, okay? At this farm size, though, it's really difficult to do. Um, and we're talking 800 cows, so, you know, another 750, 800 heifers. Um, a challenge is uh, when we sit down and figure out the, the cost of making a mix, 
okay? It is not just the value of the uh, ingredients. Uh, it is actually the cost of actually making the mix. And I see this actually all around the world where farms will look at purchasing a TMR mixer and they look at the initial capital cost and it's high. So they buy a smaller mixer. What they don't realize is their cost, their operating cost every day goes up tremendously. Uh, so instead of having higher fixed costs, their variable costs are higher. And that comes into play with how I put together some diets where I will reduce the amount of uh, mixes. To give you an idea, okay, and we can argue about the numbers that I used in, in uh, doing this, but if we take a payloader or a tractor and a loader, whatever your desire is, and value it, at $90 an hour. If we take the mixer, uh, be it pull behind or truck mounted, ours is truck mounted, and if we value that at, 100, at $180 an hour. And then going through Feedwatch, I looked at how long it basically takes to make a load. Now, making a smaller load really doesn't change the amount of time that much, because you're still going, most of the time is actually going back and forth uh, either between the bunks or between the uh, commodity bays. Uh, so the number of trips is, is, doesn't change that much. So I figured half of the time, and here we average about 30, 32 minutes to make a load, uh, start to, from when it started until it's unloaded. Uh, so I figured the full 30 minutes for the mixer and half that time for the loader. So it's costing every load of TMR that I have made here cost $112, okay, in, in equipment costs, equipment and labor costs. So if I have, if I can feed 245 heifers off that load, that's 46 cents per heifer per day. If I make it, if I split it and make two loads though, so only 122 heifers, I'm now 92 cents a heifer in equipment costs. This, this adds up really quick when we, we start making additional loads, okay? Every load, 100 bucks in equipment costs. And that doesn't include the added time. Suddenly, if I say, I'm gonna feed this barn, these transition heifers, their own mix. Well, we just added a half an hour to feeding time, okay? Uh, and, and when we're already dealing with nine, 10 loads, now you add another half hour and if we split, a couple more lo other loads out, we have a real time factor uh, in, in terms of labor scheduling. So there's an economic side, absolutely. It's a huge economic number that, that I think everyone should think about and, and, and we probably should even add this somewhere into um, uh, our, our either formulation systems or our feed management systems as to what is that, that, that true cost uh, because it's over and above what we typically consider. Okay, so uh, like I said, high cow TMR, if you want to see the diet, I'm happy to show you. You know, it's formulated for like uh, 100, 110 pounds of milk, so 47, 48 kilos, full amino acid formulation. Uh, there is some uh, added fat to it uh, to address the C16 to 18-1 ratio to get milk fat, yada, yada, yada all that stuff. Um, if you are doing transition heifers with AMTS, 
uh, and if you're trying to formulate a specific diet for them, I urge you to try and just apply the recipe to these transition heifers and you will be surprised at how well nutritionally it fits this stage of animal. All right, we're gonna go to the next group of heifers. Okay, so we're down here at the next uh, heifer facility. In, in this first pen, uh, these are six and seven month old girls. And this is their transition pen, okay, from going from bedded pack to learning how to use freestalls. Uh, again, this facility, it was built in 1996. Um, and it's not bad. I mean, it, it's uh, concrete beds with uh, sawdust, plenty of sawdust on them. Uh, it's, it's the manure scraped out uh, daily. And these girls are still fed uh, the high cow TMR. Uh, what we found was if we change the housing structure like this, so they're going from a group of 20, 25 to a group of 40, going from bedded pack to free stalls. Uh, and if we change the diet at the same time, uh, we would have some pretty severe outbreaks of ringworm, uh, and regardless of the time of year. And if I look through here, there's, there's some ringworm uh, evident. You know, we're at the end of summer, early fall, uh, so we don't see a lot of ringworm this time of year, but this is the pen that we always see it. Um, if I don't change the diet, so if I maintain them on the high cow TMR for this, just this extra month or so, the incidence of health issues goes down tremendously. Uh, it, it's just that, I think it, it's just that, that, um, that added level of stress. It's one additional stressor uh, that hits their immune system so hard uh, that, that it really would cause us to have some stumbles uh, through this pen. Nothing else special to say about them. You know, you look, body condition score, again, pretty moderate. Um, okay, these are the easy girls. The, the, these feeding these young heifers like this is really like feeding the, um, uh, the, the lactating herd, the mature herd, uh, because it, it's, their, their protein requirements are so high, we can get them to grow really efficiently uh, and not really have to worry a lot about fattening of them. So when we start getting into this next pen that things start to get a little bit more challenging and and from a formulation standpoint really can cause everyone a lot of headaches uh, that I've seen uh, all over so this this is uh, uh, kind of a, a intermediate pen you know we're not breeding in here yet they're they're, they're gonna be seven to, to nine or ten months of age um, and they're at that stage uh, where we're watching them for heats and, and recording heats. You'll see that uh, over the last year, the farms implemented uh, an activity system in this facility for heifers. Um, you can tell by the, col the color of the collars, what brand it is. Um, I won't say anything else about it unless specifically asked. Um, but we're getting, we're recording all, all observed heats in here, uh, either visual or through activity. Uh, and they're at that funny stage in, in physiological development that 
they're starting to shift from protein deposition to more fat deposition. And this diet uh, in these two pens uh, is where, especially if we have uh, a deficiency of protein or excess lactic acid in the diet, we can see these heifers pack on adipose tissue in a month. Um, now we do not, we're overcrowded. We don't limit feed. Okay, I despise limit feeding for many reasons. But what we do do to control this dot, to control fat and, and uh, behavior of the heifers really, uh, anyone who spends time with lots of heifers know that heifers are like teenagers and if they don't have something to do, they get bored and destroy barns, okay? Um, you know, you can see that, that little building in the middle there uh, so in the last 20 years, I think that's the third time or fourth time that, that there's been new plywood put on it uh, because the heifers will eat it. You can see how well they're licking it and keeping it clean already for us. Um, they, they like their clean little buildings. Um, and, uh, but I full feed them and I control that, that intake uh, and the calorie intake basically by the quality of the forage. Now, being here in, in the northern, northern hemisphere and being here in upstate New York, we can do that pretty easily by some of our uh, forage species selection. Uh, we use uh, for heifers and dry cows, uh, it's a cool season grass. It's, it's reed canary grass is what we're using. Uh, right now, uh, we're trying our first field of, of, of one of the improved fescues that uh, we'll harvest it next year, mainly because we couldn't get reed canary seed this year. Um, and we harvest it, it mature. Okay, so this reed canary, when we're harvesting it for the heifers and dry cows, will actually be two, two and a half meters tall. And at that point, Okay, here, here's a, a sample of it. it it'll be mid-60s on NDF. Uh, it will still be, um, you know, it'll still have 12, 14% protein because we uh, apply nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, but I'm not feeding it really for the protein. I'm feeding it for um, the controlled energy uh, and the fiber. Uh, and it fits really really well uh, I don't have to worry about uh, having too high of energy in these diets uh, because I can control it I can control their intakes I can let them eat as much as they want uh, based on this type of, of grass silage uh, and they they do great on it they you know these heifers at this stage have probably the lowest nutritional requirements that they're going to have uh, throughout their life. Um, so it, it's really, it, it's really nice to, to, to be able to use this. Now, I don't formulate the diets for these heifers. Okay. I formulate the, for this pen. This, this pen is, is right around the, well, we'll start breeding in this pen. So these are yearlings, uh, 11, 12 months of age. 21 month age of first calving, so we got to get them pregnant, you know, 12 months. 
I don't formulate for these girls. They have the lowest requirements. Uh, the next pen that we'll go up to, which are the uh, early bred uh, heifers, they too have some of the lowest requirements uh, in their lifetime. And if we formulate specifically for those groups, and we feed that to the younger heifers and to the later pregnant heifers, we are going to be deficient in protein primarily for those two other groups. So this again comes back to, if we were bigger, I would probably have a specific diet for this stage of heifer. But again, it comes back to that $100 a load uh, of making, a, making a, a, uh, a diet, of making a mix. So I actually formulate for all of these heifers after about seven months based upon the requirements of these girls, these seven, eight month old heifers. Okay, they still have a pretty high protein requirement. And then I check this diet with the late bred heifers. Okay, because those are the two groups that have the highest protein requirements. That does mean I am overfeeding energy and protein, primarily protein, in these intermediate pens. That I will accept that any day uh, because I know then there's my risk of getting excess body condition is lower. I also know that uh, it's costing me some money. Okay, so let, let's look at what these diets are. So before I t show you the diet, you know, give, tell you, give you an idea of what kind of performance we're getting. So from uh, six to seven months up through this, this, this pen here, okay, so up through the breeding pen because that's when I have the next weight. Uh, when they come out of this pen, their average weight is 735 pounds or 334 kilos. Now th this is going to be uh, one or two cycles pre-breeding, okay, that we get this body weight. Uh, and our average daily gain from that six to seven month age up through this pen uh, is 2.35 pounds or, or 1,069 grams. That may sound high to some people, but you got to remember for us to have uh, a 21 month age of first calving at the appropriate weight, I've got to be targeting an average daily gain from birth through calving of around a kilo a day. So about 2.2 pounds. Uh, so we've, it's a linear, we're, we're dealing with a linear growth curve. The diet itself, okay. Uh, Try and hold two things with the wind not blowing it away. Okay, so there's some corn silage, uh, seven point, but the base diet, 7.2 pounds of dry matter, 11.7 pounds of dry matter of this, this, this grass silage. Do feed a little bit of waybacks uh, in this pen, uh, in this diet, so about, uh, about a kilo of dry matter. Uh, right now it says cornmeal in there, but we're not feeding cornmeal right now. Cost of corn uh, is pretty high. We actually ran out of high moisture uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, so it's actually a uh, ground wheat. Um, we, you know, we were able to get feed ground feed wheat delivered for significantly less than, than cornmeal. Uh, so we're using wheat. Uh, it says soy plus, but it's not. It, it's a, a custom bypass soy blend. 
that as also has uh, some amino acid, uh, some liquid, some methionine uh, added to it that, that we use for the cows. Uh, and it was cheaper to use that than using soybean meal. Uh, I actually put the soybean meal that we used to have as a commodity into the protein mix for the cows, and we're bringing in the, this, this custom product, this custom bypass soy product uh, with, with, with Metasmart on it uh, on farm. Uh, and it's significantly cheaper actually. To, at feeding 0.82 pounds per day, uh, versus feeding uh, an equivalent MP amount of soybean meal. I think I, I, I knocked off 15 cents per heifer per day by doing that. Uh, so that, that, was, that was a real nice win for us. Uh, dry matter intakes that I, would, that I expect on these pens. Okay, so if we look at, this is from Feedwatch. So if we start looking at, so, so we're standing in front of pen, uh, pen 40, okay, there's 109 animals in there, and we expect them, they're eating about, this is offered, okay, we, we, I don't have waybacks on these heifer diets, so about 16, 16 and a half pounds of dry matter intake is, is what we see on these heifers. Uh, this was actually from Sunday. Um, when we get into the, uh, the older heifers, when we go up to that next barn, We'll actually have them up uh, a little bit higher on intake. Still not as much as you would think. That's because they have access to, uh, to a, a big exercise yard, basically, 25 acre grass field uh, for each pen. Uh, and grass is still growing pretty good. So you know we're getting uh, two or three pounds of dry matter intake out there on, on grass from them. Um, we look at some of these younger pens, okay, so like that pen, 25 was those older uh, heifers in that bedded pack barn, okay, and they're eating about, we're offering them about 17 pounds, 18 pounds of dry matter. Um, sounds pretty high, doesn't it? Um, but it's, if we put that on a percent of body weight, uh, uh, 17 pounds on, on uh, five, 600 pound heifers, uh, so, you know, yeah, two and a half, around 3% of body weight uh, on a diet like that uh, and, and doing that, that level of performance uh, does kind of fit uh, with, with uh, what we would expect and what we're observing. Um, okay, so not keeping these girls fat is really uh, my primary goal in this pen uh, and, and again, we're doing that by calorie dilution and, and letting them eat free choice. If I didn't have grass like this, the mid-60s NDF uh, grass, I would probably be, <laughs> I'd be looking at using uh, straw, low quality grass, haze, anything that I can uh, to avoid having to use use limit feeding on, on heifers. Okay, next barn. All right, now the next barn. So the pen on the left is um, breeding and early bred heifers. Okay, pen on the right, bred heifers. Um, will be in this pen up to about six or eight weeks pre-calving. And same diet, again, I, like I said, I formulate for those younger ones on this diet 
and then follow it up and check it nutritionally, um, the nutritional status on this group. Uh, remember, once they hit that 191 days, 190 days pregnant, the, the fetus, the conceptus starts growing at an exponential rate and is going to account for about 600, 650 grams, or about a pound and a half a day of her daily gain, if we were to run her over scales, about a pound and a half, that is the conceptus. So running them over scales, we've actually got to be achieving pretty high rates of gain to get them to the, the target that we want. Uh, again, these girls have access to a big pasture, a uh, big exercise lot. So we're, we know we're getting some intake on, on grass out there. Uh, so it's always hard during the summer, spring, summer, and early fall like this to get dry matter intakes on these girls uh, because it is really dictated on uh, how much grass is grown out there. Management challenges in this group, uh, we have heel warts. Uh, this is the first group that we see heel wart. These two pens are the first pens we see heel warts in. What do we do? Uh, they're run through formaldehyde twice a week. Uh, and that does a really good job of, of controlling the warts through here. Uh, can be a challenge during the winter uh, because it'll be It'll be damn cold in here, uh, and we've really got to keep an eye on, on uh, making sure that we don't have too high of a concentration of the formaldehyde and burning, burning feet. Uh, it's happened once or twice, but, uh, you know, management concerns, management issues. Again, um, you know, I, I haven't talked at all about heights. I don't measure heights. I'll, I'll glance through, you know, you look through. Uh, you look down this, this feed, feed rail, okay? Uh, to give you an idea of the top of this feed rail, it is about four inches below my shoulder as I'm standing next to it. Um, so you can see pretty uniform uh, heights uh, across these heifers. Uh, and again, it, it's maintaining body condition on these girls. Uh, bit of a challenge uh, but what I have found for me on this farm uh, most of that challenge is if we harvest the grass too early and I end up having to feed really high quality grass uh, performance numbers when I tell you some of the numbers that we see some of the growth numbers in, in these pens over this last year, uh, I will tell you they're down a little bit. Uh, and there's two reasons why our growth rates in these two pens are down a little bit. One is we had a young stock manager for maybe a year who was horrendous. Uh, to put it real simply, she sucked. She should have been taken out back with all the dead calves that she ended up with. Uh, the heifers, the calves that survived were definitely survival of the fittest. And yet at the same time, we still see their gains depressed a little bit. Uh, and uh, we had a couple months of, of breedings that the 20, 21 day preg rates on these heifers, yeah, they sucked. Uh, and, and it all has to do with the slug of heifers that she was responsible for that, that all came through at once. 
Uh, we're talking uh, average yearly gain loss on, on a slug of heifers of probably close to half a pound a day. Um, and those are the survivors. You know, the lungers, the lungers and, and any, any of them that looked really bad were all, were all sold. Um, so we're going to deal with that for, for a while. Um, the other is our corn silage last year was terribly dry. Uh, you know, 47, I was happy when we hit 47 dry matter. Uh, when we started feeding it, it was in the 60s on dry matter. Yes, 60s on dry matter. Um, I used that on the heifers as much as possible. Caused some challenges with uh, body condition score. We actually, I had some heifers that, that some periods where body condition score went up on these girls because it was more intestinally digested starch. Uh, and we know that that goes more to body fat. Um, and the other is uh, it, it cost me on trying to, to feed, having to feed some excess protein to try and maintain performance on these heifers. Um, this year I'm looking forward to getting into 2021 corn silage when we do uh, because it, it's a much nicer looking crop so far. Um, in terms of, of dry matter, <laughs> just just looking at it in terms of what the dry matter is that, that is being harvested at. Uh, we haven't had a frost yet. Uh, October 5th and no frost in upstate New York is, is an oddity. So we'll see where we end up. One more group of heifers to go to and then we'll have some more discussion. Okay, so now we are in the close-up area. And close-up heifers and close-up cows are housed together. And again, it's, a, it's being at that funny herd size where we really can't segregate. Now, any animal that you see in this pen that does not have a collar on them, uh, which of course there's none of them up here eating, um, no, that's not true. Hmm. It used to be that if they didn't have collars, they were heifers. Um, but I'm thinking that with some of the shifts with uh, uh, with the activity and like that, that some of these girls might have collars on. Okay, but I can tell I can tell you that these two girls right here um, are heifers. Okay, so I'm standing next to uh, probably a third lactation cow. Okay, so you can see we have the frame. Uh, we have maintained body condition score uh, nicely. Uh, there's a heifer right there with uh, that you can see that that is not obese. <laughs> uh, let's come down to this pen. There's less fans. Okay, and if you look back in there, you'll see a jersey. Uh, the, I'll come back and tell you the jersey story shortly. Okay, let's find some heifers. The heifers are all laying down on the pack. Definitely what it appears like. Yep. Oh, there, okay, so there, there's, uh, nope, she's a cow. Huh, okay, so we have, um, I have another body weight and that's when they get moved onto this, this barn at about six weeks pre-cabin. 
and average body weight uh, moving down here, uh, raw 1,296 pounds or 588 kilos. For an average daily gain of, of 1.84 pounds, 835 grams. However, you have to remember that includes some, some gain of the conceptus. So if I take out that, that uh, anything over 190 days pregnant and calculate the conceptus gain, Okay, so our, the weight then of her in about six weeks pre-calving is 12 point, or 1,238 pounds, uh, 562 kilos, with a gain of 1.6 pounds, um, and 726 grams. So that, that's actually a little low. Um, again, that's partially due to uh, coming in out of summer like this where we're, we, I, don't, I can't really get a good handle on how much grass they're eating. Uh, being overcrowded and and that um, that really dry corn silage. Um, while we're here, you'll see there's a couple jerseys in, in uh, the calving pens. So the farm has decided, um, you know, the the parlor was built in 1995, uh, and what we're finding is uh, we're getting more and more cows that don't fit in the parlor anymore. Uh, so we're going to put together a pen, uh, you know, at least 120 of jerseys uh, being paid for components. It's actually a pretty nice deal. Um, and they actually are going to fit through the facility a little bit better. Get out, get here where there's a little bit less fan noise, I hope. Yeah, that's nice. Okay. So show you a couple more things everyone let me get my papers here right so this is out of dairy comp this graph of it's an e-plot of body weight okay so you can see you pretty much have a straight line of body weight increase from birth um, through went through about six weeks pre-calving a little bit of noise in there, absolutely, um, and, and that that is just the individual animal uh, variation. Um, could I make it tighter? I would hope so. Some of it is overcrowding uh, because that is a little bit wider range than, than we have historically had. Um, I got to dig into that more. Actually, I, I was surprised to see that that level of variation. How does that follow through with what first lactation milk looks like? Well, here is a graph of first lactation animals, uh, seven day milk average, okay? You can see we have pretty decent peaks, but I can tell you that our peaks are down. Um, our peaks are down uh, quite a bit over the last year, uh, probably in the uh, seven to 10 pound reduction in peak. Again, is that really dry corn silage that, that came back to hit us. So here, here's peaks for first lactation animals over the last year. And I don't see them peak usually till around uh, day 90 or so on first calf heifers. And you can see back uh, six, seven months ago, we were, our average peaks were 95, 97, 93, uh, versus now we're, you know, 87. Um, 79 I don't know I don't know how many of those 79 uh, pound cows are, are before 90 days in milk um, my guess is that that 
that's not a true representation of, of where peak's going to be. That 87 is probably more realistic. Uh, so we have some challenges ahead of us uh, that, that we'll, we'll slowly get there uh, with better corn silage, I hope. Um, I just wanted to show something real quick here. You know, when we start talking about that, uh, that change in body composition, because that, this really does dictate how we formulate. So if we look at relative stage of maturity of the animal, uh, body protein, actual body protein content does this. Okay, body fat does this. This inflection point here where the two lines cross, is about when puberty is okay so that that in, in a, on a farm like this with the rates of gain we're doing you know for us that that's hitting us at about six months okay and and that those those heifers once they start coming into heat uh their their gains if you start looking at average daily gains in those first couple of, of cycles they look pretty bad uh these girls just go goofy really and and their intakes are all over the place. Their average daily gains are all over the place. They, they really, they don't know what's going on with them, with themselves. Um, but again, that, that early phase here, there's so much body protein, so much frame growth that, that it's the most economical time to take advantage of frame growth and, and, and changing age of first calving. So you have to remember, if, if we want to change age of first calving, you know, once they're pregnant, okay, the, the clock is set. There's, there's 280 days. Uh, so all we're going to change by changing the average daily gain post-pregnancy is, is the weight at calving. For us to change the, the, the age of first calving, it's changing pre-breeding average daily gain. Um, because we want them to be that magical 55% of mature weight okay at breeding uh, so for here that means we're targeting like 400 kilos 880 pounds for the for that first for that breeding weight and uh, to do that in in 12 months okay so 880 pounds and we're averaging we'll say 80 pound birth weight so that's 800 pounds a gain in 365 days okay so that is my target that's my target average daily gain is whatever the, the result of that is and it's over two pounds a day is, is okay so so let's see two pounds would be 730 uh, pounds so i got to be like yeah like a kilo a day from birth until first breeding uh to hit my growth my body weight target at, at, at first breeding and again I keep harping on this, but it's so important. That is when it's the cheapest time to put um, frame and muscle on them. Uh, and like I said, when we were over by those transition calves, take a recipe, apply it to those young heifers in, in AMTS, and you will be surprised at how well a diet for 80 pounds of milk, 100 pounds of milk, matches the requirements of, of those heifers. Um, beyond that, uh, what I, like, I keep harping on as well, I'm watching body condition score on these animals. I will do anything I can to 
control body condition score. Uh, and you, you might have also noticed that the, the particle size on that grass silage is pretty big, is pretty long. Well, that's fine for me because I want them to spend the time eating and uh, not getting into trouble eating barns. Uh, so I, I would much rather have them taking their time chewing uh, and enjoying life uh, and me deciding what's going on in their daily schedule instead of them forcing us to do repairs on facilities all the time. We have enough of that with uh, um, the two-legged animals that are around the place. Okay, um, I think that's about it for now. And we'll see you all when we're live. And ask questions, folks. That's what I'm here for. We'll get to the question and answer period shortly. First, a little housekeeping. We are coming down to the last few webinars for the year. I appreciate recommendations for speakers, topics, and formats for next year's webinar. We are very excited next month to host Daniel Scothorn of Scothorn Nutrition in our November webinar. We were fortunate to host Daniel last year for a Canola Amazing webinar in March. Some of you may be familiar with Daniel from his informative and well-done LinkedIn posts. Raised in the dairy industry, Daniel's nutrition knowledge was gained through a bachelor's and a master of science at Dalhousie and the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. Daniel worked as a, feed, a dairy feed advisor for FeedRight in Alberta, then as the ruminant nutritionist with co-op feeds across Western Canada. Daniel and his wife, Heather, created Scothorn Nutrition, a company designed to offer independent nutrition advising to farms wanting to improve feed costs and milk yield. Through this, nutrition consulting has been provided to many farms and organizations globally, such as Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Vietnam, and Canada. Daniel has volunteered with Farmers Helping Farmers by helping small dairy farms in Kenya improve milk production and cow health. When Daniel is not working with farms, cows, and fellow nutritionists, soccer coaching, personal fitness, cooking, surfing, and seeing new places are favorite things to do. He has three amazing children, Logan, Alexandra, Zara, and a very supportive wife, Heather. Register to join us for a 9 a.m. or 5 p.m. Between now and November 11th, the U.S. switches back to standard time from daylight saving time, so we move the webinar forward an hour in the evening by visiting the agmodelsystems.com webpage and looking under the Nutritionist 2021 webinar tab for the proper webinar sign-up button. The webinars are organized and produced by AMTS, USA, and Global. Our host in the morning was Dr. Elena Bonfante, AMTS distributor and partner in Dairy Innovations Italia with Dr. Bill Prokop, who also joined us. Our distributor in Turkey, Dr. Huday Kavustran, joined us in the morning webinar as well. In our evening webinar, we were joined by our distributor in China, Dr. Sean Lee of Ansi Tech, and our usual co-host, Paula Torillo of Afina, who hosts the webinar as El Webinar del Nutritionista. She re receives support from Rock River Lab in Argentina and is ably assisted by Paula Alaniz in her translations. We are especially thankful to generous sponsors who make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. 
We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer, Animal and Food Production, hashtag Science Hearted, the Canola Council of Canada. Learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com. Adina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives, and Proteca, transforming the future of farm animal health. Our silver sponsors are Aginomoto, superior nutrition through amino acids, and Virtus, both of whom have sponsored us from the start. Also, the forage analysis labs of Dairyland Laboratories and Dairy One, both with affiliates around the world. Ataseo, ruminant nutrition solutions to ensure animal performance and micronutrients feeding the future. Our bronze sponsors are Amino Max, Purdue Agribusiness, Origination Inc., Phileo, Balchem, and The Milk Group. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you consider them in your future formulation decisions. Now we will add on the questions from the morning and the afternoon sessions. Without anything else, let me say a couple things. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. First of all, hi, Elena. Hi, Hudai. Uh, I, hi, Sean. I'd say hi to Bill, but he's here in the office. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I was going to add a little segment after I did the uh, did the rest of the recording. Uh, and, it, and then I decided, uh, I'll just say it live. Uh, any Anyone that... that uh, has walked cows with me, uh, knows, knows this, but everyone that hasn't walked cows with me, you know, I, I get asked a lot about, um, what do I look for? What do, what do I look at? What are my steps that I take when I'm walking through a group of animals? And I always tell people, I, I, I really can't explain it to you. I, I, I've tried. Um, it, it's just one of those things uh, that uh, my brain just will switch so many different directions walking through a group. Uh, it'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll be glancing at body condition score. I'll be looking at uh, how does the coat look? How do the eyes look? How are they eating? How do their feet look? How does the how do the stalls look in terms of of, of bedding cleanliness? Uh, if it's a dry lot, how how dry is it really a dry lot? Is it soft? Is it compacted? Is it you know are there things with the physical structure that that are are you know things that are suddenly protruding uh, that could cause uh, uh, an injury? Uh, I I just kind of look at the whole environment it, as well as, as looking at the animals. And it's really hard for me to really describe what I'm looking at when I'm going through it with people. Um, I, I guess I, I take the approach of, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is I take the approach that I'm the owner of, of the, of the facility as I'm walking through it and, and seeing what's actually there. How does, how does, how does the overall, picture look to me um you know i can't say that i'm looking for that i'm counting how many animals are ruminating or or how many animals are lying down it, it's some of those things are so dependent on the time of day uh in in relation to feeding and 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 everything that that it's i i just go and see what just try and get a 
an overall feel for what the basically what the what the animals are telling me. Uh, and, and then I'll, I'll spend a, a fair amount of time in the feed bunk, in the feed alley, uh, just watching how they eat. Uh, they can tell me so much about so many things that are going on uh, by watching their eating behavior. Uh, so it, it's, and I always end up apologizing to people about that, that I can't really tell you I do steps A, B, C, D, uh, because I don't, uh, there, there's, my brain's weird. Anyone that knows me will vouch for that. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at a whole picture. Um, I'll just add to that, that we did have, um, gosh, years ago in our blogs, there was a, a blog that Tom did on his questions that he asks when he is looking at a heifer facility. So it, it might be of value to go back to that and see what he had to say. Um, I certainly appreciate, we've had so many um, of these farm tours at this point. The fact that this is a, a working and um, not necessarily perfect farm. So we, we, you know, when we were up at the Minor Institute, fantastic facility. But it's, it's research. And so things that need fixing probably do get fixed or are different than um, this facility where you work with within what you, you have and fix what is profitable to fix, I guess, would be sort of sort of a little summary from my aspect. Um, Bill and Elena and Hudai and Sean, we all certainly want to hear from you. I'm waiting to see any questions that might come in from our audience. Um, any comments or thoughts that, that you all would like to share from your perspective? And we'll start off with Elena. Um, beauty and, and youth before all others. <laughs> Thank you, Marianne, for the opportunity to speak first. So, um, thank you, Dom. This uh, was great, and also the audio <laughs> was fantastic this time. Uh, new microphones, new microphones. Oh, okay, hard, 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 yeah, hard, hardwired microphones that, that actually and, and then clipped my collar. Oh, okay, <laughs> nice to know. Yeah, so I completely agree with you uh, of what you said uh, right now that uh, you have to experience, uh, you know, the farm visits and see different things in order to understand and to see the old picture, I would say. And um, I have a question about the uh, nutrition, actually, um, and uh, what you said about the fact that uh, it's very difficult to uh, formulate a uh, um, unique diet, uh, only one diet for the whole uh, you know, growing period. Because, as you said, uh, the post, uh, I mean, the, the pregnant heifers get very efficient to transform energy and, uh, you know, put, put that as a body condition. So if you uh, have uh, um, heard with only silages, uh, since the lactic acid is uh, the, you know, the main uh, problem, let's say, so what, uh, so can you summarize uh, what will be the strategy in order to, you know, avoid uh, them to get fat? Yeah, um, dilution is the solution. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's, there's no other way around it. Uh, it it's really, when, 
I, I stumbled upon this lactic acid relationship. Oh God, probably in like 2003. Uh, it was something that I that I happened to see on farm one year, uh, and then I got talking about it with Danny Fox, uh, and and at the same time there was another conversation floating around that that all tied into it. So we saw one year historically we used to do at McMahon's um, grass silage first uh, before alfalfa and and really made cow quality grass silage um, and. It was awesome. It you know it's great for cows, and we saw always we're having struggles with heifers uh, being overconditioned. Uh, then the next year we had we had one year we had a a wet spring uh, where we ended up not being able to do grass until after we did alfalfa, or after yeah until after we did alfalfa, and the heifers. Uh, Body condition score was phenomenal. Uh, it was right where we wanted it. The growth was great and really didn't think about it. The next year, we went back to doing grass the way that we normally did. And within 30 days, we started to see heifer body condition score go start going way up. Um, and then that got me really curious as to what the hell was different. Why did this happen? And at the same time, there was a farm, a large farm in central New York that was asking the question, uh, you know, I'm feeding, we're feeding our heifers all reed canary grass. Uh, it's awesome stuff. It's like 18% protein and they get fat. As soon as I started talking about that with Danny, he remembered some, uh, a grad student that he had that, that they did a project. Uh, it was with Holstein steers. Um, and the whole idea was for these farmer feeders uh, was to add urea to corn silage at harvest uh, to try and increase the crude protein of the, of the corn silage to reduce feeding cost of the steers. And he went and he pulled the dissertation out and, and we're going through it. He remembered that they saw that the urea, urea treat, treatment corn silage fed heifers had uh, more body fat. At the end of it, um, the difference in treatment was basically in, at the diet level, uh, it, they were four versus 5% lactic acid in the diet. And there was a 2% difference in a two unit difference in empty body fat, 26 versus 28%. Uh, he then told me that, that uh, uh, when he came back to Cornell in the uh, early eighties, uh, he and Sniffen had uh, talked about that and, and had the same idea about adding urea to corn silage for heifers. And they, uh, so they did it again with Holstein heifers. That data was never published. And all he could remember was every Monday, Charlie coming into his office and, and proclaiming in typical Charlie Sniffin fashion that he could not believe how fat those heifers were on the urea-treated corn silage. Um, and, and we started discussing more about this, this interaction with lactic acid. And at the time, I, I really couldn't find anything in the literature. And there still isn't a lot in the literature. Uh, but I went and I actually went back to some of the human uh, exercise physiology literature. And, and it, it's pretty, it's, it's known uh, that uh, lactic or lactate, when we're talking about in humans, uh, 
and, and there's the post-exercise lactate accumulation in muscles, that that's actually going back into the Krebs cycle uh, and, and being utilized uh, as a true energy source. And in terms of ruminants, that lactic, um, about a third of the, the carbon skeletons in intramuscular, uh, uh, intramuscular, intermuscular, one of the fat pools, about a third of the, the carbon skeletons is purely from lactate. Uh, so as, as we feed the, these, the, these um, higher lactic acid diets, uh, we're feeding that, it's short-circuiting the, the entire metabolic pathways. And, and it's, it's not triggering any insulin responses. It's not triggering anything. It's going directly in and primarily being used for adipose metabolism. Uh, and, and it doesn't take a whole lot. Uh, you know, the little bit of data out there shows, you know, going from 4% to 5% uh, is enough to do it. And unfortunately, when we get into to a lot of these silages, and, and this is where uh, a lot of people, you know, Danny was shocked when we went through this, you know, especially if people are doing a good job with, with harvest and, and packing. Uh, and if they're using inoculants, you know, a lot of these corn silages, we may be seeing six, seven, eight percent lactic. Some of these grass silages around the world, hell, I've seen some of them in, in the uh, upper teens, low twenties on lactic. Um, and, and and there's there's an interaction there with maturity of the plant. So the the like with grasses, if we have an immature plant uh, that fiber is a little bit more fermentable, even in even in storage, uh, all of the sugars that are there. Uh, so we get this really, really good fermentation. We get this really good stuff for cows. It's just really high in lactic acid and we're causing fat heifers. So if, if we're dealing, if we're dealing with, with these silos that are full of silage right now, full right now, and we know that they're high in lactic, the only thing we can do is dilute it. Uh, and then that's going to be straw, hay, whatever, uh, byproducts. Um, because you, there, it's not possible to feed extra protein to overcome it because it's not being treated as a, as a glucose source or as a probe source that that's going to go through normal, go through what we would consider ideal metabolism for growth. Yeah, got it. And, um, so would you suggest to, um, harvest, uh, you know, uh, grass, uh, um, more mature grass uh, and uh, reserve uh, that just for heifers, if that is possible. I love have... doing that. I, you know, and it, it, it could be grass, it could be trit triticale, it could be wheat, barley silage, I don't care what. But, it, but if we do a forage source, huh, th this is an area where you know, we, we have pushed so hard for 40 years in this industry to get producers to make better quality silage, better quality forages. Mm -hmm. And we've achieved that. And we've always framed that in the discussions of for the cows. Well, that's great for the cows, but that isn't, that isn't the, the, appropriate feed for heifers 
and even somewhat the dry cows. I mean, that, that's why dry cows, how much straw do we feed the dry cows? Because we don't have other low quality, you know, high fiber sources of feed forages to use. So we have to go to something that, that uh, is high NDF, low quality, you know, decent, you know, uh, that, that they will eat and will do everything we want it to do. So if possible, and, and it takes, it's a management issue on farm of being able to have that extra storage space and then be able to, to harvest the appropriate crop and the appro at the appropriate quality for the different animal types. And not everyone can do that. But if possible, absolutely. You know, you look at my, my, close-up diets, you know, where most people are, where a lot of people are feeding three, four or five kilos of straw, I'm feeding like one, maybe two, uh, because I have all this, this grass silage that, that's basically doing a very similar thing as, as being high straw. Mm -hmm. It's allocation. It's planning and allocation. Thank you, Tom. Thank, You're welcome. Thank you, Elena. Um, a question while we're discussing the lactic acid, what is your marker? For lactic acid, how many grams per kilogram dry matter intake? Uh, so let's see. I am looking at, I want to be below 4% uh, dry matter of lactic acid in the diet. Thank you. Um, uh, barring other questions coming in, I guess I would ask um, Hudai, do you do you have any questions that you would like to um, questions or comments you would like to direct to Tom? Okay, thank you, Marian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So maybe you know, we are using some barley and veg together. You know, we grow the barley and veg together. Yep. Maybe uh, one third veg uh, and. Uh, Two thirds is uh, barley, so I think this is a good combination for the heifers and the dry cows. What do you think about that? I, 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's going to come down to um, harvesting at 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 the the right stage of maturity, uh, and, and uh, the nice thing with with that kind combination is um, if they're trying, if they're letting the veg uh, go a little bit more, the barley is going to be a little bit more mature. So we're going to have something that that's a, can have a nice level of fermentable NDF in it. Um, yeah. That and, and with that vetch, uh, it's not going to produce as much lactic acid uh, during fermentation. So yeah, it's going to be, it can be a great combination. Okay, thank you. So my, I have a question, you know, about the, uh, the, the feeding the cows with milk. So you win the cows about 50 or 60 days, something like that. That is what I understood from you. Yeah, we start, we start at day 49 and, and 49. wean them down over the next 10 days. So how many kilo, how many liters or kilograms of uh, milk do you feed during that period? Uh, we just switched this Hudai to where we, oh, we step it down uh, on a daily basis. Um, I want to say we're stepping it down two liters a day. Uh, 
so let's see let's see on day so like on day 49 they're going to be getting 10 liters a day total uh so four in the morning two at noon four at night uh then they'll remove the noon feeding um and then remove two liters from the night feeding then remove the other two liters from the night feeding and then remove two from the morning and then uh they'll stay on that for a couple of days and then remove the last the last milk feeding okay so i think you are feeding the same ration uh, I, I i don't know if i got wrong or uh, you use the same ration for the uh, three groups of uh, heifers the one is the transition about six percent no between the eight or nine, ten months and early breeding and also the uh, bread uh, heifers are you yeah, using the same ration just i am i i am um so i basically have uh so the heifers lesson from weaning until six months are on the high cow tmr so this and, is a good idea yeah and then from seven months until about six weeks pre-calving they're all on the same diet that's good Okay, thank you, Tom. Yep, and 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 you know, uh, Marianne, can I share my screen? Yeah, let me stop sharing. If that'll be better, because then people won't keep seeing gray. Okay. So, I just want to show one graph. Um, I put this together a couple years ago, um, and. So I, I took um, by month um, and, and what body weights would be, and I think I did this for like 900 grams a gain and whatever predicted dry matter intake was and, and calculated both the, the uh, ME concentration per kilo of intake and the MP concentration per kilo of intake uh, for heifers. And, and then I threw some, some cows in there uh, just to give an index. Uh, and if we look at the, these two-month-old heifers, you know, you see that they have, there's nothing comparable to them, even the three-month-old heifers. There, there's nothing comparable to them uh, at any other stage of, of, uh, of, of their life. We get into these four, five, and six-month-old heifers here. You can see that that gets us basically the same energy and protein concentrations required as cows giving, you know, 40, 50 liters, you know, 100, 110 pounds of milk. Um, and it, it starts to it starts to come down and we get into this around breeding and these early bred heifers and, and their requirements are so low, um, which which is fine. The problem is what I see around the world when we get into formulating bred heifer diets, people will formulate for the average bred heifer, 140 days pregnant. Well, that, that's in here. So they're formulating for these really low levels. But then when we start getting into that last trimester, we start to see their requirements, especially their protein requirements, start to increase rapidly. 
And in that month prior to calving, their their requirements are extremely high. It, you know, we're we're talking greater than 50 liters of milk comparable. So it, without feeding that that adequate levels of protein in this stage, we end up with with underweight heifers. They 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 will get fat, they can get fat. Uh, and if we were to run them across scales, it would still look like they were gaining the appropriate amount. But, you know, a pound and a half, 650, 700 grams of that is actually the growth of the pregnancy. Uh, so, so we're actually shortchanging these heifers. So when I do these, these, these diets, I'm, I'm actually looking at, I'm formulating in this case, with it being the same diet from about seven months on, I'm formulating them on the seven, eight month old heifers, knowing that I'm going to be overfeeding, especially protein, um, for several months. Um, and then in, and then in late in that last trimester, it, we come back closer to that's actually meeting their requirements. Uh, if I was doing just, just, if I had an open heifer diet and a bread heifer diet, my bread heifer diet would still be fed at these higher levels of protein just so that I can maintain that, that target average daily gain to get the right weight at calving. Um, versus, you know, in, anyone who's formulating bread heifer diets and, and using 120, 140 day pregnancy to set their requirements, you are shortchanging those heifers that in that last trimester and, and sacrificing weight at calving. Um, Again, like I said, if, if it, in an ideal, you know, if we were large enough where I could make two full loads of TMR, and then I could, pro then I would probably have an early and a late pregnant diet. Um, but this, the, with the size that we are, it's easier just to do one diet aimed specifically mm -hmm. at those later pregnant heifers. Uh, thank you, Hudai. If you have thank more you. questions, we'll come back. I want to get um, Bill Prokop, if he hasn't already left. Um, I know he had to go off. So, Bill, do you have comments or or some questions you'd like to ask? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Um, so I really appreciate uh, your insight in terms of the mentoring process when walking pens and we can argue about how successful I have been as a mentor. <clears throat> but anyway, um, uh, the one thing I've, I've learned and I use, I think, to be beneficial, and I'll share it, is I, I definitely try to use a systems approach and understand the life cycle of each stage of the operation and look at each of those subsystems, like the wet calves, zero to weaning, as an enterprise and understand what the ideal enterprise output would be as if they were gonna sell that product to the next system within the dairy. And would they buy those animals or would they source them elsewhere? And um, just from the standpoint of, to reinforce to all the players on the dairy, how interactive and interdependent they are and understand that each one of these subsystems makes up the whole. And I think you alluded to this beautifully when you brought the reality in of what does it truly cost to build a ration? Well, sure, the model tells us what the cost per head per day is, but we're not factoring in the opportunity costs of the equipment and the labor and all the other things that have to be considered, especially when you make 
choices that someone would challenge and say, well, why are you feeding such an expensive diet to heifers that don't need it? Because it's actually a better, it's actually a more effective and ultimately more cost-effective solution to do that than to build two separate diets. It's going to cost you more. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I really do appreciate that approach. And um, the only question I had is if you're going to throw out a guideline for a 30 hour digestibility on NDF for grasses or even legumes that you would want to have for the heifers, uh, you know, for the fill factor, the UNDF considerations, all that, do you have a number in mind? Uh, you know, Bill, I don't. For, for those, for, for these heifer diets like that, I, I'm primarily have set a minimum for what my forage NDF is as a percent of body weight. Okay. Uh, and, and I'll let that float between, you know, 1.1 and 1.4. Um, I've done diets less than one. You can make them, they can work, but they get tricky. Um, yeah. Beyond that, you know, these grasses, when we get into this, this stage of maturity, I, I'm not even going to guess. I'd have to go back and, and look at what a bunch of samples have, have been running uh, in terms of these NDF digestibilities. Why I'm going there is if to, to quantitate this for the purpose of harvest. Now, I, I know you could do it by stage of maturity of the plant, but let's say you want to do scissor cuttings to actually get a handle on where we're at, right? And I, and I, I can see this question coming up, like what kind of NDF Ds are we looking for at say 30 hours or whatever it is, but yeah, I appreciate that. The other question then is the lactic acid, the model gives it, a, assigns it an energy value, obviously, you know, as a carbohydrate fraction, but my impression is it's not, it's not being assigned the metabolic impact that it actually has. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, it, it's, it's set up within, within the Cornell model to, um, uh, provide a little bit of microbial yield. Uh, it's based off of some of Jim Russell's work that showed that you get about half the ATP from uh, the fermentation of lactic, uh, then glucose. Right. Um, and it, it's just going into the overall energy pool. We don't have a, a post-absorption metabolism model, um, which is which is the level that we would have to go at to be able to, 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 to do all of that. Okay. Um, and I, I do have to run, but I'll ask one more question. I really like the exercise lot principle that you have on your heifers. As, and as with human physiology, we know that exercise tends to work, obviously, to build muscle and bone. And so the stature benefit of having exercise, especially for the developing heifer, or at least pens, as opposed to confinement, um, you think that contributes to some of the success story or you think it's overstated? No, I think it's critical. Um, hell, you know, go, go walk through a group of uh, groups of, of freestyle heifers and they just, they don't look the same. Right. Uh, and, and I think that that is, um, then, and, and all we got to do is, is go into any, uh, <laughs> going to any school in the U.S. Uh, and 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 look at the physical activity differences between kids and right. and, and everything that goes along with that. Yeah, agreed. And why dry lot dairies oftentimes present with some of the depending upon the heat stress <laughs> regulation mitigation 
but white dry-lived areas, I think their animals tend to present to be the most uh, robust in many ways. And it's because they've got all that room and uh, off concrete. I agree. I agree. We need to come up with a flooring solution that, that's as close to dirt as possible. But um, if we try to do anything like that in the, in, uh, the northern hemisphere uh, or the northern part of the U.S. or any place where we actually have water, um, suddenly environmental regulations yep. want us to cover it, concrete yeah, I, it and I, cover it. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. No, I understand. I, I was going to go there, but you brought it up. So that's the next. <laughs> yeah, the yellow helicopter flies in and, and you're in trouble. Yeah, I know. So, all right. Well, hey, it was great. Thanks, Tom. I do Thanks, have Bill. So, all right. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Ciao, everybody. All right, before we go to some other questions uh, or uh, any other comments, I have a question. Um, in high TMR diets, would less than 7% um, would be less than 7% lactic or greater, sorry, than 7% lactic acid. Um, it is at six months of age, you need to reduce to less than 4%. Is that correct? Oh, no, I, I, all of, I, I look at that right from, uh, uh, I, tr I work to keep the lactic less than 4% across all heifer ages. All right, thanks. Um, I have a question on how, how will you um, integrate the required, are there different requirements for those jerseys? Uh, bringing in 120 is going to be a significant enough group or no? Well, what are their requirements and what are your targets for them? Uh, it, it, it's the same, you know, our, so instead of trying to target a kilo, uh, probably I'll have to sit down and figure out uh, what the, what target breeding weights would be. Um, but all, all the, uh, all the work over the last 10, 15 years has basically shown that, that, uh, in terms of energy and protein requirements, there, there's there's no there's such minimal difference uh, between jerseys and Holsteins that it that it it's we can't even measure it. Okay. All right. Um, unless I get more questions, um, Elena Dai, do you have additional questions or comments you'd like to make? And uh, Sean was with us, but I think he has left. Sean left. Yeah. <laughs> so just uh, the last one, Tom. Um, for amino acid optimization, uh, do you consider to use it uh, uh, on the growing period? When is better to invest in that? In which window? Um, I think definitely in, in um, that first four or five months of life. Mm -hmm. Um, and definitely in, in, uh, calf starters on uh, that cafes, um, you know, you look at the work that, that, uh, Rodrigo did, uh, for his PhD with Van Amberg and, and there was clear benefits of, of supplemental, uh, methionine in, in calf starters. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I also think that, especially during that, that, that young phase, uh, if we think about when we would typically see uh, um, any most diseases, respiratory diseases, uh, anything that will help with immune immune function during those during those periods, um, I think definitely uh, warrants 
uh, higher planes of nutrition than, than are commonly used. Thanks. Could um, I? No, thank you. Okay, all right. Um, well, thank you everyone who joined us and um, asked questions and um, just continued to listen. We will repeat this again tonight with a different audience, or if you want to join again, there's nothing stopping you. Um, and next month we'll have, again, to remind you, we'll have um, uh, Daniel Scothorn, and then we will finish up with Sam Fezenden in December. He's going to talk to us a bit about feeding in robotic dairies and his experiences there. So, all right, everybody, thank you for joining us. And we will say goodbye this morning. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye, bye, everyone. Bye. Stay safe. And hopefully we'll be able to start traveling soon. And, and Marianne, um, it, it's so awesome to hear a baby crying in the background on you. <laughs> he, he's ready for his morning nap. That is, for those of you still listening, that's my grandson. And I'm a little bit on grandmother duty. And he is the cutest thing ever. So, nice. all right. <laughs> all right. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye, bye. bye. Tom, Paula, welcome. And... Let's see. Um, Paula, do you want me to lead off with some questions or do you have some that you want to start asking? I have a few. Hi. Uh, hey, you can start if you want. Part, pardon me? She you said can you start, can start if you want. <laughs> okay. All right. Terrific. Um, I'm going to start with a question from Brittany Sherman. Um, she asked, um, Tom, can you go over your reasons again for not limit feeding heifers? Ah, uh, okay. There's very, very few farms I have seen anywhere in the world that can limit feed heifers correctly. Uh, partially because we have many heifer pens that are overcrowded. Uh, and if we're gonna do any type of limit feeding, we need to ensure that there's, oh, we have to be less than 100% stocking rate at the feed rail. Uh, and, and even with that, uh, if the pens are not uniform in size and of animal, uh, those smaller animals are gonna get uh, bullied out of the way and perform even less, unless they're jerseys and then they're, they'll push all the Holsteins out of the way. Um, and uh, the management of it is, is, is really tough. And, and there's some really neat data. I think the, the, the best part of it to me is some data that, that I saw several years ago. It was just an abstract form. Uh, it was out of Brazil uh, that showed that um, if we... It, it, they did it some on sorting and there were some other data that showed that if that it showed that both sorting and slug feeding were learned behaviors and their lifetime learned. Um, I know that for sure with sorting. I don't think there's been as much work with that as on, uh, on, on, dairy animals um, or, or on, on limit feeding. 
but definitely with sorting, uh, that's a lifetime, that's a lifetime learned behavior. And, and given an opportunity, those animals will revert back to those learned behaviors. Um, I, I would, I know that there's a lot of discussion about limit feeding. Hell, there was just a paper published about uh, improving the energy efficiency of lactating cows by limit feeding lactating cows. And, and I cringe when, when I see uh, things like that because I, I, the management required to successfully do those types of things is so high that there's very few, very few farms that I think can successfully uh, and, and consistently uh, achieve uh, the desired outcomes. Okay, um, I'm gonna ask another question and then see if Paula wants to ask some and then we'll come back to mine. Um, so this is, an, I'm gonna follow up with another one from Brittany. I've got, I've got another question um, from another person but I'll stick with Brittany's. With the milk cow TMR being a good fit for weaned heifers, how do they do with the silage slash moisture levels? Um, she always thought hay was best for weaned heifers, but it's hard to find the best hay to use. Well, the thing is, um, if we feed it a silage, that just means that they drink that much less water. Uh, because think about it, if, if they, uh, they take a mouthful of hay, uh, of dry hay, uh, that's going to become saturated in the rumen pretty quick. Um, there, there's absolutely nothing magical uh, about feeding hay to, to young animals, as long as they came off of a good calf starter and, and that rumen development has, has been positive, uh, which is a whole nother story in itself. Uh, but, but with a good transition, these young, young animals can, can easily go on silages as long as, as the diet's formulated. You know, we, a lot of these uh, issues like this with uh, silage is bad for, for young, young heifers or, or calves really goes back to uh, some of the component feeding times when people would just feed straight corn silage to heifers. And then you end up with these short little fat things uh, that, that just look terrible. Uh, but if it's a, if it's appropriately balanced, there is no problems with them at all. And the whole concern I've heard the concern about, oh, it's all it's so acidic, and and yada yada yada. No, because once it's you know again, if the rumen development is coming along correctly, then their ability, uh, you know, it's ruminal fermentation. Okay, the pH of the TMR might be four. But when, when they take a bite and, and, and everything's working right in the rumen, it, it's going to come up into the sixes um, really, really quick. Um, the big thing is, it, it's, yeah, that moisture, they, it, it's just a displacement of, of uh, where they get the water from. Uh, I don't know of any data that, that would say that, that they would actually eat less than if on a TMR than if it was a completely dry-based diet. All right, thank you. Paula, are you ready with a few questions? 
Uh, yes, I'm ready. Great, go ahead. The first question is about the TMR composition. Okay. The high TMR. Yep. Uh, what about it? The composition. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> oh, well, the best way to do that is... I'll let you share. Yeah, let me just bring up the, uh, I'll bring up the diet and, and show uh, it. Remember, we cannot uh, watch uh, it. All right, all uh, right. That's right, because it'll be so small. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You can't watch it because of the different platform. Mm. Yes. All right. Uh, it is, let me bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. And go to the right diet. That'll help. Uh, high carb diet active. And we'll put it on a percentage basis. So it is on a dry matter basis. Um, rounding a little bit here, 38% corn silage, 20% alfalfa silage, 9.5% uh, of a chocolate candy cookie byproduct, 11% uh, ground wheat, 5.9% uh, of a bypass soya uh, product and 15.5% of a protein slash mineral, vitamin, fat, everything else blend. Uh, it is right now because of the alfalfa silage that we're feeding, it's a little higher in protein than I'd like. Uh, regardless, it's designed to, to, it's formulated to support 47 uh, kilos of milk. Okay, perfect. I think you, you answered the question. Okay. Okay. Uh, the next question is about the body condition score of the HIFERS. Mm -hmm. uh, which are your goals in the different uh, ages? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, this one I will share because I love this slide. Uh, let me find it. Let me find it. Maybe I can make a screenshot. And yeah. Oh, it. that's right. That's right. Damn it. I forget. Tom, if uh, you can put it up, I'll, I'll see if I can make a screenshot and send it real quick to Paula. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I can't do that. I need to do this. Uh, okay. Um, to me, there's, if, if you look at how much variability there is in body condition scoring, um, I, I'm always hesitant to, to say a number. Uh, you look at this data, uh, there's really only mm -hmm. three scores. 
know, too thin, too fat, just right. Uh, so I will always run the heifers uh, just right. And maybe I, I actually prefer them to, to be a little on the thin side, if anything. Uh, I don't like, let's see, I'll put a number on it. Anything over three and a half to me is too fat. Okay. I'm getting there, Paula. Okay. Tom, there's, I have a question of body condition scoring while I'm doing this, if I can Go ahead. somehow multitask. Um, actually, you might be able to see it in Weeben's question. There is a body condition score. Oh, QA. Uh, where do you put the number? And reread that question, please, because you know how I'm at multiple. Oh, it's a multiple part question. All right. So well, the only first answer, you know, only answer the body condition score, and then I'll tackle those others. All right. All right. Uh, how many times do I body condition score the heifers, and what is your target for different phases? Okay. Um, I. <laughs> Hmm. All right. I, I guess I need to answer that part of the question as people that have walked cows with me uh, know how I walk cows. Uh, everyone else, um, I, I have to explain a couple things. Um. I, my um, brain is, yes. Tom, while you get going on this one, I'm going to just add that Paula has a similar question, but it's geared towards weight, not necessarily body condition scores. So if you okay. can tackle both of those. Okay. I, I, my, my, my brain is weird. Uh, the, the way my brain works, it, it would keep uh, people busy for multiple PhD students. Um, when I'm walking through a group of animals, uh, I can't really say that I'm body condition scoring all this animal, that animal, this animal, or that I'm doing locomotion scores or uh, counting rumination, number of cows ruminating or number of animals lying down. I... I look at the whole thing. Uh, I, I look at trends in body condition score. Uh, I'll look at body conditions. You know, if I'm walking heifers, it'll be, oh, weaning six months, first first breeding, and then about three to four weeks pre-calving. Uh, and that's just the way that really the, the animals are grouped. I'll, I'll walk through and just look at at trends, are we gaining? Are we losing? Uh, are we seeing a, a slow trend towards increasing? Um, at the same time, I'm looking at at hawks. I'm looking at the stalls. I'm looking at the physical plant to see if there's damage that could injure animals. Um, looking at at um, I see everything, but not in what most people would consider a logical way. Um, 
I I look at and, and I'll go back to this when I look at body condition scoring, I'm looking at uh, trends at, at different stages uh, and and I'm looking at this simplified she's too thin, they're too fat, they're just right. Uh, and and it's it's just the way that it's just the way that I just the way that I see the animals. I, I can't really explain it. Um, so I'm I guess I'm looking at you know to kind of answer your 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 question, Raven is I I'm looking at anytime I'm walking through a group of animals, I'm, I'm actually looking at, at the body condition score trends, you know, and I, I might not write down um, specific animals. I, I might, I might not write down uh, specific scores. Uh, I'll write down notes to myself of, you know, seeing an increase in body condition score in this pen or, or, uh, seldom see a loss in body condition score with heifers. So that's not really an issue, but some it's possible. Uh, and and I, I'm just looking at those trends through the growth cycle uh, and then going back, thinking about the diets and, and what could potentially be causing some of those trends that we're seeing. Um, I do, the, I do it the same way with cows, you know, even with cows, I only really look at body condition score at, at like, two or three stages of the lactation cycle. And again, it's looking for those trends. Okay. Um, Paula, before you start on another question, I'm going to, I have a question here and then I'll let you go. And then I'll come back to some of Weaven's questions. Um, okay. Are you going to give me bills? Yes. All right. I love the way Bill wrote it too. All right. <laughs> All right. So, Tom, can you get 30 plus pounds dry matter intake in large heifers as the model predicts? Ha ha. <laughs> Where do you put the ME and MP allowable gains for larger 190 days carried calf plus heifers? Yeah. All right. So let's do the intake one first, because that is, uh, it, it's funny that you bring that up, Bill, because um, I've had that conversation quite a bit uh, over the last couple of years and, and actually sat down with Van Amberg uh, to discuss some of these things as well. Um, because some of the numbers that we hear from people um, are, are really, uh, concerning as to what level of intakes that, that, that they see or what they expect. Um, and, and what's worse is, is the, the intake predictions uh, that are, hmm, that are in the model that are from uh, the NRC uh, for intakes. They pretty much are, are <laughs> let's see, uh, scary is the best way to put it, uh, because they are not continuous. If, if you follow through uh, some of the intake numbers, you know, especially we get into 
close-up heifers um, and such, uh, they start getting at, let's see, the equation from the 2001 RC for anyone over 210 days pregnant. Uh, drops the predicted intake for heifers to 1.7% of body weight and then corrected for environmental, we correct for environmental conditions. Uh, but they also do dry cows at 1.9% at, at of body weight. Um, and, and when I went back and looked at some of the data that went into those equations, uh, it really was uh, aimed more at Oh, okay. Um, it is really aimed at, uh, uh, they, it was a small data set for the heifers and they were fed the types of diets that, that we would expect the heifers to get fat on. Hey Tom, uh, that's worse. What's worse? Oh, for some reason we're only seeing, at least I'm only seeing a bar. Oh, well, hold on a second. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm trying to capture a screenshot yeah, yeah. for Paul. Uh, That should work. There we go. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And uh, I think those those intakes that we see is, is really dependent on uh, on, on the diet. Um, I can, you know, on some of these heifers, uh, we can be looking at. Uh, let's see, on pen sixty when they are in the winter inside eating just TMR, uh, that 30, 31 pounds of, of intake on those later bred heifers uh, is pretty common. Um, but uh, if we were to knock off, you know, let's say 10% for, for it being really cold, 27, 28 pounds, uh, is what I'm pretty used pretty used to seeing. Again, though, that that's with these um, high fill type diets, where letting them eat uh, eat as much as they want. Um, I you know I think Bill, it goes back to some of the same things that we see, uh, and we could even say the same thing with transition cows, where. Uh, these close-up dry cows that are fed really heavy corn silage diets, uh, intakes uh, from what I've seen have always been quite a bit lower than, than when we get into the, the more uh, calorie controlled, uh, moderate to high fill type situations. So I, I think it, it, it really depends on uh, on the diet of, of what we're offering these, these animals at the various stages. Um, and, and, you know, the, the new NRC that's going to be coming out sure doesn't give any guidance on this, uh, especially with close-up heifers uh, or just heifers in general. They're, they're going to do, see, for close-up heifers, they're just taking 15% off of whatever the predicted intake is for dry cows. Uh, claiming that there was no data. Uh, so that's a huge hole in, in, in our knowledge base. Uh, and I'd like to say that, you know, version seven of the model will give us some guidance on that. But 
Hell if I know, because that really hasn't been tested with heifers, uh, especially on, on the room and fill side. Um, I think there, there's there's a lot left to learn there. And and even if we look at the so the equations that that we use as a base are from the 96 beef NRC, which if we trace those equations all the way back, they go back to the um, uh, 1978 public NRC publication on predicting voluntary feed intake of domesticated animals. Uh, those of you that are used to the, any of that stuff, it's the yellow book. Uh, and, and Danny was actually the, the, the chair of that committee. Um, when the beef NRC was looking at, at revamping equations, um, uh, Galen had a, a grad student or a couple of grad students that, that went through and did a meta-analysis and, and developed some new equations. And the predictability of the new equations they developed versus those old equations was very similar. Um, and the the accuracy that the precision of the equations of the new equations to develop was actually lower than the precision of, of those equations from the seventies. Um, I think there's still a lot we, we've got to figure out with, with predicting intake on, on these heifers because I think it's a, a much more multifactorial system than, than we are taking into account now. Um, the other part of Bill's question is, set, where do I set ME and MP allowable gains? Haha. <laughs> and, and that's why I have this spreadsheet tab up. Sorry, I know Marianne's going to send this to you, Paula. Already uh, did. Okay, cool. So I, I put this together. Mm, I'm showing this. Oh, right cool. Now. Good. <laughs> I, I put this together two years ago. I, I started thinking about this actually when when I was in China doing some uh, doing some sessions, and I came home and I expanded it, starting right from two months of age, uh, all the way up through calving, assuming a twenty four month age of first calving, and then included uh, some dry cows and then some lactating cows. And, and for the heifers, I think I assumed 900 grams average daily gain. So then taking whatever the predicted intake was and the, uh, then the, the total energy requirement and the total MP requirement, I put all of these on a concentration of, so ME per kilo of dry matter intake and MP per kilo of dry matter intake. And, and it really shows some awesome things. Um, these, these young heifers, you know, the first three, four months of life, I mean, the first three months, hell, we can't, we can't feed them enough to meet what they actually require to, to gain as much as, the, as we would like. Uh, you know, you compare them to uh, a mature cow given 50 kilos of milk, you know, on a protein basis, that cow requires about 120 grams of MP. Yet that that young heifer is requiring 180. Massive, massive protein requirements on these young animals. And we can see that that stays, and it, and it was really cool to see this, that even up around six months, like, hey, look at that. 
Uh, that was accidental. Uh, we're pretty close to those MEMP requirements, especially compared to those cows given 35, 40, 50 kilos of milk. Um, and then it goes down tremendously uh, as they grow. And we get into that, that puberty phase and then that early bread heifer phase. And, you know, here, so 16, 17, 18 months of age, mid-pregnancy, that is the lowest requirements time in that heifer's life. And if people actually formulate diets for like 140 days pregnant, they're going to, and they're just meeting protein requirements, they're going to lose body weight at calving. Because once that pregnancy requirement really gets to be important, and that's where that 190 day uh, uh, pregnancy comes in, Suddenly, there, there's about a pound and a half, about 650 grams of average daily gain equivalent uh, that is going to the conceptus. And that is a very protein-rich requirement. Uh, and you can see that, that we get into these this last trimester, and these animals actually, their protein requirements start coming up tremendously. And then that last month pre-calving, because of mammogenesis on that continued growth, you know, we can't, the, their, their requirements are actually comparable to that cow given uh, 120 pounds of milk. So when, when I'm formulating diets for these animals, if I'm doing a bred heifer diet, I'm actually formulating around these heifers. I'm saying, okay, depends 190 days, 195 days pregnant knowing I'm going to be overfeeding protein in the early bread heifers, but I'm not going to give up that, that protein allowable gain in that last trimester. And, and we actually uh, uh, have in, in that, that uh, in, in the program, Bill, um, two, two outputs for gain, uh, two sets. So we have ME and MP allowable, which is, the heifer herself, and, and then we also have ME and MP allowable plus conceptus. Um, and well, there's what the growth curve for see an 1800 pound mature cow. So that's the bred heifer growth rate of, and you can see here at 190 days pregnant, sorry, Paula. Uh, that the shape of that growth curve changes tremendously because of that conceptus. And let's see, so with conceptus, I actually got those tables worked out. Um, did I just do miss graphs? Yeah, okay. Uh, bread heifers by mature weight. So there we go. If we do uh, 1700 pound half uh, mature weight, uh, that pregnant heifer herself has to average 1.64 pounds a day. Um, so call it 800 grams during pregnancy. And in that last trimester, including the weight of the conceptus, they're going to be gaining somewhere around 3.2 pounds a day. 
Uh, so 1.6, 1.5 kilos a day. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm actually, I, I'm, I'm looking at both of those, Bill, and, and making sure that, that my MP allowable gain uh, is never lower than my ME allowable gain. Uh, and then I'm making, and the way we've got it structured such that, that the MP allowable gain will be calculated after the pregnancy requirements. Uh, so I can still target that, that, that 800 grams. Um, but if I was, if I was looking at it in other systems, I'd probably for that, that last trimester be targeting probably closer to that, that three pounds a day, uh, ensuring that, that I have adequate MP there for that conceptus and the heifer herself. All right. Um, I know Paula has a lot of questions at her end, but I just sent her about three emails that she probably has to process and get put up. So I'm going to ask another of Weaven's questions. And I think you <sighs> tackled the um, question he had about ME and MP. And let's do a little bit about the, the young calves and then get to a bunch of questions from Paula. So um, we've been asked, where do you put the newborn calves right after birth in your coldest days? Like we had in February when you shot last time. Okay. So what we will do is um, at birth, they will go into a warming hutch, uh, which is just a hutch with a, a, a infrared light in it uh, until for the first, oh, 18 to 24 hours. Uh, at least till they're dry. If they're dry and they're and they're standing and they've got their colostrum and everyone and they look perky and everything, great. They are then eligible to be moved into a hutch, and that hutch is bedded with uh, it, it's deep sawdust. Uh, and during the winter, they they may use some uh, some straw. Uh, as a base for the calf to snuggle down into. Uh, and, and, and that's about it. And, and as long as they're out of the wind, uh, they, they, do, they do well. Uh, we've actually found if they stay in that warming hutch too long, if they stay in that warming hutch 36, 48 hours, they actually make the transition harder to, that, uh, to, to the regular hutch. Okay. I think Paula wants to get in some questions next. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I have many. <laughs> but I, I don't want you to show anymore. I won't. I yeah. won't. I'll <laughs> no, stop. You're I'll, clean, I'll clean. sit on my hands. I'll sit on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I, I'm asking uh, question number six. Uh, which is your opinion regarding the use of waste milk in, in baby calves? Uh, sometimes uh, total solids are as low as 6.5 or 6.7. Uh, and how, how much milk would you give them in that case? <laughs> Paula, we have a really good program that handles that. <laughs> I just, I just want to put a plug in for Mixerlot. <laughs> Oh my. Okay. So 
hit on a key component there. Waste milk is not waste milk. And so we feed waste milk. Um, but it's selective waste milk. It is only from cows that are, you know, let's say that they had a footwork and, and they were on, they were being given penicillin or they had uh, some metritis and they were being given penicillin, but they are, the, the treatment has ended and they're just waiting for uh, the withdrawal time to go back into the, the milking strength. Um, we never use actively treated cows. We never use mass, uh, especially cows that are actively being treated for mastitis. Um, so our waste milk is very selective and, and we actually use probably more milk, uh, more saleable milk than waste milk. I have not gotten into the farm yet on, on measuring uh, solids. Um, that will be coming. Uh, I'm, this is a, a multi-stage, uh, multi-step process. Um, I'm just excited that we're going to be getting a pasteurizer here. Um, depending on the dairy economy, could be six months, could be six years. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's 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 part of the capital plan now. Um, if I was dealing with, with some of that waste milk that was that low in solids, uh, boy, the only thing you can do is, is add milk replacer to bring solids content up because you, to try and feed, hell, to get the same, let's think of it this way, instead of solids content and, and talking about that. Let's flip that around and say, what's the dry matter intake on these calves? And, and we know with cows that if today, if we were feeding always the same amount on an as-is basis, um, and we had a very wet ingredient in the TMR, so today they'd be offered 20 kilos of dry matter. Tomorrow, it could be 25 kilos of dry matter. The next day, it could be 15. We know what that type of variability in, in, in intake does to the to milk production. It's going to do the same damn thing in terms of, of growth of the calf and even worse, the health of the calf. Um, if So I, I would be extremely hesitant to be saying, well, you know, we're only 6% solid, so we're going to feed twice as much liquid. I don't think they can handle that, that, that huge shift in, in as fed amount rather with these young calves, we should really be trying to get a stable amount of dry matter intake into them. And if that means we have to increase or decrease the amount of milk, milk replacer that we put in with this waste milk, then that's the best thing that we can do for the consistency of intake and growth and health of the calf. Tom, um, before Paula gets her next question in, um, <laughs> address the question of cold stress with nutrition um, that we've been asked. How do you manage that with, um, with your solids or with your feedings, feeding frequency? 
Oh, oh, so okay. So at McMahon's, um, for the longest time, we only fed twice a day, and, and I've been pushing to increase uh, or to add an additional feeding because of the cold stress. Uh, when we put together the calf model that's within MTS, uh, I actually, oh, it's a little bit based on the NRC calf model in terms of the cold stress adjustment, uh, but we also included heat stress adjustment too, uh, which, which the NRC doesn't. And when, when I ran those calculations, it showed that, that we were giving up average daily gain uh, due to cold stress. And the good thing is at, at the farm, we have uh, scales. So we could actually go through the records and look at what happened to weaning, not necessarily weaning weights, what happened to average daily gain at different times of the year. And we clearly saw that during the cold and during the heat, we lost average daily gain. Uh, and it worked out just that it, it was, well, if we feed uh, two liters additional at noon, that provides adequate uh, uh, nutrients to overcome that, that loss. Um, the farm tried it for winter. And as we approached spring, uh, one of the owners said, I don't think I'm going to stop this. And I just started laughing. And I'm like, I knew that we would have this discussion because we saw this consistent, consistently higher average daily gain. Uh, and, and that third feeding has been held in place ever since. And we're probably six or seven years into that now. Uh, but that, that is really to, having the data to show uh, the impact of cold stress on average daily gain in those calves was key. Uh, but even then, to be able to show within the model uh, what the, the energy cost due to cold stress was doing, uh, it, 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 was, it was very clear. Cool. Um, Paula, go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm asking, uh, for how long? Let me see. How long does it take to transition the calves from the starter from the starter to the TMR? Uh, that you mentioned in the presentation that. But how long does it take? Sure, sure. So, um, now right now things are a little heifer populations are backed up. Um, so what we do in normal stocking rate, <laughs> okay, is... I am sorry. I'm trying to mute myself and I'm writing in the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Was that you, Paula? I'm <laughs> I thought you were going to yell at Tom for starting to do something with another slide. No, I'm, I'm not even facing my computer. <laughs> okay. So, there it is. 
Um. Uh, crap. Now I lost my train of thought. Thanks. Um. Holy crap. Was- oh, transition. There we go. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Okay. So uh, we only use a calf starter. We don't use a grower grain. So after weaning, they will stay and just receive in, in, in the small groups of three, they'll stay and just get the calf starter for another week. And then they'll go to a group of 10 or 13 and, and they will get the calf starter alone for another week. Then when they move to the next pen, they'll be offered the TMR with the calf starter top dressed for a week. After that, they're fully on the TMR. Are they perfectly transitioned at that time? Probably not. Uh, I I do see if, if, if we do that transition too fast, I, I actually see it in 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 uh, how the heifers look. Uh, ideally, I guess I I would say if we were to do that trend, that that top dressing with the TMR for two weeks, I think it would would make that transition on these calves even smoother. Uh, but it it's it's it works pretty well. Yeah, I would say that two week transition uh, is adequate. Perfect, very clear. Okay, uh, talking about the starter, uh, how how much starch does it have, <laughs> and how how are you how do you modify? The, the starch content uh, when uh, when uh, high first age increases and what about fat and NDF content okay so in the starter um, it is oh the best way to describe the starter is which we have tried to make it as close to a high cow TMR in a pellet. Uh, And and I challenge people to think about this. Yes, starch and propionate are intimately involved with rumen development, but we're dealing with a young rumen. Why would we feed that any differently than a cow giving 50 kilos of milk? So that means we're, we're talking starch levels, you know, in the low 20s in the calf starter. Uh, it, it's, I, we, we add a little bit of soy oil just to help uh, in, in the manufacturing of the pellet. It's relatively high in sugar, uh, like eight or 10% sugar. Uh, it is really kind of as high in NDF as we can get it, uh, which is really a challenge because uh, the sources of NDF are are limited. Uh, So we actually use a lot of of, uh, 
uh, how would you call it in Argentina? Um, 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 Trego, it's, it's wheat middlings. Uh, so like, we can almost say wheat bran. That would be the closest thing to call it. Yes, a frechillo de trigo, yes. And, and, and they, with the high level of that, and it, it really makes a really good hard pellet. Um, and uh, we've actually, you know, if, if we were to look at some of the uh, some of the work that that came out of Cornell, uh, Mike and, and and Rodrigo, their their starter was a little different in that they had some flaked uh, corn and some flaked uh, barley in it. But still, the, the general concept was the same, where it was moderate starch, moderate sugar, as much NDF as we can. And, the, and they actually showed some beautiful responses by having bypass soya in it, as well as supplemental amino acids in that calf starter. Uh, and and the, 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 the performance uh, was really phenomenal on, on, on what those calves did on that starter. Um, it, because they are, they are, I, I, I'm a firm believer in treating that young rumen like a high producing cow. Uh, we want good fermentable fiber. We want good, uh, an adequate, but not excessive amount of fermentable starch, a good level of fermentable sugars, and then adequate MP to, to provide the growth that we want. Um, Paul, Tom, is that where you add Metasmart in? Yeah, that in okay. the, the Rodrigo's Rodrigo's data. And, and if they want, Paula, I can find the slides from Rodrigo that went through what his what their calf starter formulation was that Cornell developed. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, I will find that and get it sent to you because it it's. Oh, it's a really nice formula. Tom, would you mind um, these these pictures that we've been taking, putting this together in a little slide set that we can add to the recording? Have a blast. Pardon me? Have a blast. <laughs> you got to send me the same slides you sent Paula. Then. <laughs> Be quick and capture them on screen. <laughs> uh, I already did that, yeah. Uh, uh, all right. Um, Paula had some more calf questions. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Um, could you bring us uh, more details so, um, about the the liquid feed offer, the the plan you make for the little calves, and the winning program specifically? <sighs> okay. So. Again, we are trying to, I, I, it is possible, let, let's put it this way. For the last 10 years, we've talked about uh, everyone's goal should be to double birth weight by 56 days. We have farms doing triple birth weight by 56 days. Uh, and, and that's easily achievable. 
we are we're not, at, at this farm. We're not tripling. We're probably two and a half times. Uh, and I expect that to go up once we get switched to pasteurized uh, milk. But to do that, what we do is the first three feedings are, let's see, the first feeding is colostrum. The next two feedings are transition milk. And then they go on three times a day feeding. They go until day 21, I think it is. Um, basically three liters of milk in the morning, two liters of milk replacer at noon, then three liters of milk at night. At day 22, they go to four liters in the morning, two milk replacer at noon and four at night. At day 49, uh, the noon feeding is removed. At day 50, two liters are removed from the night feeding. Uh, the, and that's held for a couple of days. And then the next step is to remove the night feeding for a couple of days and then two liters removed from the morning feeding for a couple of days and then they're weaned. So it's, it's like 10 days. Uh, and, and we saw a substantial increase in average daily gain during that, that, that two weeks from, from when weaning started until we were looking, we were weighing calves every week for three weeks. And, and we saw that the, the old style where they would have the noon feeding removed for two days and then they would be weaned versus this gradual step down. Uh, we saw that those calves that, that were hard weaned, uh, their average daily gains for the most part dropped 50%. Uh, for two weeks. Uh, in this step-down phase, uh, there was virtually, it, it, uh, there's very little decrease in average daily gain during the weaning process. Okay. Great. Uh, Carlos uh, made a comment about the, the calves he, he saw them uh, a little annoyed and he is asking, uh, may, can it be because of the flies? And what do you recommend to um, lower fly population? Uh, does the, the cat's tails have something to do with that? No, we actually, so in our milk replacer during the summer, we actually add a larvicide um and 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 it's it's cheap uh right and, and i know places that actually add it to the calf starter as well um you know overall cleanliness that that by far keeping things dry keeping excess grain uh cleaned up all, all the normal hygiene things but then using these larvicides uh, really does have a, a, a really good positive impact on, on fly numbers. Uh, if 
Bill Stone is still on this. If you want to make a comment about that, Bill, I greatly would appreciate that. Um, that's actually a question I get a fair amount of the time. And I in, in air movement, you know, especially if they're in, in an indoor situation, uh, air movement with fans clearly does help with, with um, uh, with, with getting rid of, of uh, controlling flying numbers as well. But I, I'm a big fan of, of these um, um, larvicides. Uh, they, they work, they, they do, they, they work really well. We, we add it in at, you know, about April when, or March when we're in early spring and it'll stay in the in the formulations until yeah this time of year. Did you ever try the parasitic wasps? Do they work on fly control? They do, uh, and and it's something that that I've uh, uh, tried to get to. Um, um, uh, people to look at as well. Hmm. And, and, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of those, those uh, I basically going back to the old IPM days, right. um, that went through and people were jumping all over it. And then that whole system's just kind of uh, been dropped. I, I know that you can get the parasitic uh, wasp. Uh, and, and I was actually talking about it recently with someone that we should uh we should really look at those yeah i know we used them on the dairy and i just didn't know how effective they were no no they they if, if they're used on a regular basis uh they're good yeah paula keep going if you have any yes tell, the, gr tell, tell hey. the group tell the group paula Every question's a bottle of, of, of wine from Mendoza. <laughs> yeah. Um, question, Ambifluid Benzeron, Paula? Is, is that the product? Yes, you mentioned. Yes, the active ingredient. Uh, brand name mm. here in the U.S. is Clarifly. Okay. Okay. So now, uh, which is the the weight of the hyphas at the at the first calf first calving considering the weight and the age you showed us um, in your hyphas and how do you measure major body weight in dairy farms where they don't have a scale <laughs> <laughs> magic Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So the, the target weight is to be at least 80% of mature weight at calving. Uh, we are, especially coming off of summers like this, we're usually a little light. Uh, and so the, the last weight I have is at about six weeks pre-calving. Uh, so I usually will do a, a, I'll try and guesstimate as to what the calving weight would be. Uh, but at that six weeks pre-calving, 
Uh, we're averaging a little over 600, right around 600 kilos, um, which will put us pretty close to target. Um, I double check that by looking at uh, the first lactation milk yields versus the milk yields of, of the mature cows. There is a awesome relationship there uh, that whatever that percentage is of first lactation milk versus mature milk is basically identical to what body weight relate what the body weight of those heifers are. So if I go in and I don't have body weights on cows, but I have milk weights, uh, I'll do a quick, uh, I'll do a, I'll do a quick calculation using uh, milk weights uh, to see what that relationship is, and that will tell me how far off the heifers are. And if I don't have scales on a farm, uh, I will go do heart girth measurements. It's not perfect but at least it's given me some numbers to work with. Um, and, and it's probably better than trying to use cull weights uh, because a lot of the times the cull cows don't represent what the true cow should look like. Uh, and if I was consulting full time, um, I would spend the money and get a set of, uh, a set of uh, portable scales. They're not that expensive, and the amount of information that you can get off of using scales is tremendous. I don't think we're anywhere close to really appreciating uh, the value of all that of, of that body weight data. Okay. okay. Keep going, Paula. Okay. Ah, you're you working me. <laughs> always works you. Yeah, I know. Yes. <laughs> okay, you talked about bursted line. Could you bring us more detail of this grass used as a silage in the diet? Uh, 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 reed canary grass. Mm. That that's what it, it. It's a cool season grass. Um, in Argentina, you would be able to grow it successfully probably starting about 300 kilometers south of Buenos Aires. Uh, it, it really requires uh, similar growing conditions as, as ryegrass. Oh, okay. 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 Yes. And the last question, when you talk about high protein content in the, in the diet of the hyphers, uh, what values do you mean? <laughs> well, I will not tell you what that number is because I'm not going to give you a crude protein number. <laughs> because it's, it's okay. meaningless. I will say that I will always run on, on my heifer diets. 
I will at a minimum have MP allowable gain uh, at a minimum 100 grams greater than energy allowable gain. That could be at 12% protein, that could be at 20% protein. Okay, perfect. Okay, Paula, are you done with questions? Yes. I think we're done with questions unless I send something. Well, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I hear Chile is, is their vaccination's really good. So I think we, we really need to be talking about about you know, potentially doing a session in, in person. And, and yes. I think the, the safest place to do it would be Mendoza because I could fly <laughs> into Santiago and just go over into, into Argentina. <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. I, I think you're right. <laughs> Paula, I thought your doctor told you you needed to travel. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. Really? Your doctor told you that? No, your doctor. Oh, 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 hell, my colleagues are openly saying, God, we can't wait till Tom starts traveling again. It's been interesting. <laughs> they want you, they, they want you to be happy. That's why. Yeah, 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 yeah. They love me in small doses. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like my wife and daughter. <laughs> yeah, they're also wondering when he's traveling. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, a couple of weeks ago that I was thinking of going to Italy in early November. And, and my wife didn't even blink. And my daughter was like, oh, I want to go with you. And when I said yesterday that I'm probably not going, they both looked at me like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. Well, Paula, thank you so much. And, you know, um, someday I'll be able to see you and give you, you prizes for all that you go through. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to. Thank you both. Both of you. All right. I, I love these. I, I actually enjoy the webinars with Argentina the most because we get such good questions. Um, so I appreciate the, the willingness to ask questions and seek more answers. And it's always fun to do them with Tom. Um, so everybody that attended, thank you. And um, thank you for hanging in. It was good to see some faces that I have, well, some names of people who I haven't seen in a while. So um, that was really nice. And we will see you next month, we hope. Okay. Right, and, and, and hey, anyone that, that is in the US, next week's Cornell Nutrition Conference, if you're coming and you want to have discussions on, continuing discussions on this, um, let's see. Uh, what should we do? Should we do a glass of wine per question? Will be the charge. <laughs> I, I think that'll be fair. Everyone around me is just waiting for next week. My colleagues are like, "Oh, it's it's we're gonna drink." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> um, <laughs> and 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 if you want to delve in more on that, making sure your your solids are balanced, ask me about mix a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> so. Brittany knows. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Have and good day wherever you are. And thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next month. Ciao, Bye. everyone. Bye.